Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequencies... 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to far west Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisa Luhoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Raza and Shana at the Sawa. Terrorists kill at least 80 people in France during Bastille Day celebrations. Ceasefire in South Sudan's capital, Juba, appears to be holding and Amnesty International accuses Cameroon of human rights abuses. In economics, Ivory Coast aims to double oil and gas output by 2020. And in sports news, Kenyan government slams foreign media over recent doping allegations. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musson. At least 80 people have been killed in an attack in the southern French city of Nice. A lorry drove at high speed into a dense crowd watching a fireworks display on the country's National Bastille Day holiday. The authorities in Nice say the lorry continued for two kilometers before the police shot and killed the driver. A huge cache of guns, grenades and larger weapons were later found inside the lorry. A European diplomat has warned Zimbabwe's leaders to heed their citizens' call for peaceful peaceful change. The warning by French ambassador to Zimbabwe, Laurent Delahousse, comes in the wake of a large public outpouring of support for freed government critic and past Evan Mawarire. Delahousse called on Zimbabwe to heed calls for a new united and peaceful country before it's too late. Zimbabwe has been gripped by a wave of protests and strikes over government policies and alleged corruption. Delahousse has urged authorities to uphold the constitution in the handling of the protests. I make no excuses for believing in democracy and human rights as enshrined in the constitution of Zimbabwe, the freedom to assemble and demonstrate within the framework of the law, and to use social media in a peaceful manner, the protection of the people by the state without unnecessary use of force, even the right to stay at home Meanwhile, hundreds of Zimbabwean citizens living in South Africa marched to Zimbabwe's High Commission in the capital, Pretoria, to highlight their concerns. The Zimbabweans who are part of the march say they are tired of everything that's going on in their country. We all need to go back home. We all need to put Zimbabwe back to where it was. And it's not okay that a 92-year-old man is still in power, yet even in Britain a 49-year-old guy makes one mistake and leaves office. So we are coming together and say we as students are affected because 
once we are done studying here in South Africa, we, there are no job prospects for us. And we want our country to be better. We've never seen a better Zimbabwe. We can only take so much. And I think we've reached the limits. We can't take it anymore. We need our country back. Our family is there. We're far. It doesn't make us happy. A plan to provide immediate assistance to people living in camps in Nigeria's Bono State has been finalized. The UN Humanitarian Agency says 275,000 people are living in 50 newly accessible military-controlled camps in the area. Aid workers are also preparing for cross-border assistance from Cameroon into Banki in Nigeria, where 15,000 displaced people need urgent aid. UNICEF and the World Food Programme are to scale up assistance in northeastern Nigeria to help some 431,000 people, including malnourished children. And finally, warring parties in Aleppo, Syria, are being urged to stop the violence and keep cultural heritage out of the conflict. United Nations Cultural Agency UNESCO has condemned the recent shelling at the National Museum in the war-torn city. It was hit by mortar shells on Monday, causing extensive damage to the roof and structure of the building. Meanwhile, Libya's five World Heritage Sites have been put on an endangered list by UNESCO. That's the news. Headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. And you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. A terrorist gunman killed 80 people and wounded scores when he drove a heavy truck at high speed into a crowd that had watched Bastille Day fireworks in the French Riviera city of Nice yesterday. A driver also opened fire before police shot him dead. And U.S. President Barack Obama has condemned the attack in Nice as horrific and says he is offering the French government whatever assistance they need to bring those responsible to justice. Simon Marx reports from Washington. There is breaking news tonight from France. Just horrific scenes right now out of the seaside city of Nice. The news from Nice broke just as America's evening news programs were coming on the air. Soon, live images from the south of France were being beamed into the country's living rooms, onto its computer screens and cell phones, and into the Situation Room at the White House. President Obama was alerted to the tragedy and then issued a statement condemning, in the strongest possible terms, what he called a horrific terror attack. He said the U.S. will stand in solidarity with France, calling it America's oldest ally. Here we go again. It's going to be a whole different world. We're living in a whole different world. The man who wants to be America's next president, Donald Trump, was giving a previously scheduled interview to Fox News as the scale of the attack became apparent. He announced that in light of the events in France, he's scrubbing plans to unveil his vice presidential pick on Friday. And in comments that some of his critics found characteristically intemperate, he suggested the attacks only underscored the fact that he's been right to call for tougher action to protect America and Western society. If this turns out to be yet another attack from radical Islam, then we're going to have to take, our president is going to have to finally admit 
and do something about it. Just hours before the Nice attack, the FBI director James Comey warned members of Congress of a possible exodus of Islamic State terrorists from Iraq and Syria, with some of them heading back to the Western countries from which they originally came. He said the group has lost so much territory due to American-led airstrikes, he thinks its leaders are now desperate to hit targets elsewhere. Simon Marks, Washington. These countless human beings, both inside and outside our country, had the nobility of spirit to stand in the path of tyranny and injustice without seeking selfish gain. They recognize that an injury to one is an injury to all and therefore acted together in defense of justice and common human decency. In 2009, the United Nations declared the 18th of July as Nelson Mandela Day. This is in recognition of the former South African state president's contribution to the culture and peace and freedom for all. Channel Africa, celebrating Mandela Month. As a ceasefire in South Sudan's capital, Juba appears to be holding doctors at a United Nations hospital there continue to treat people wounded during six days of clashes between rival forces. More than 270 people died as a result of the fighting, including two UN peacekeepers from China. Dian Pen reports on a hospital run by Cambodian peacekeepers at the United Nations mission in the country, which has been helping the injured get back on their feet. The Cambodian Field Hospital has so far treated nearly 40 people injured in the fighting between forces loyal to South Sudan's president and those who support the first vice president. Tan Mading Tang Nial is the guardian of one of them, a small boy who was wounded while playing with other children under a tree. The boy sustained bullet wounds in his abdomen and on his leg. This is from a mortar from a tank from outside that has been shot from outside and hit a tree where three children were playing under. This child here was wounded and the other two brothers were slightly injured. But thank God the other two children are fine. At just five years old, South Sudan is the world's youngest country, but it has been mired in conflict for about half of that time. The UN said the recent crisis in and around the capital forced about 7,000 residents to flee to its protection of civilian sites or POC sites, which are already housing scores of people uprooted by insecurity. Colonel Nong Yamako from the Cambodian contingent at the UN mission in South Sudan, or UNMIS, is the head of the hospital. After we provide properly medical care and treatment and surgical operations, the patient from day to day, after the recovery, they, they can go back to their camp, POC. And I'm really, really happy to save their life uh, to be in South Sudan. 
The crisis erupted despite the signing of a peace agreement in August 2015 and the establishment of a transitional unity government earlier this year. Tan Mading Tang Nial remains hopeful that one day the guns will be silenced forever. I hope that South Sudan regains peace because the people of South Sudan are good people. I hope people live in their houses again without killing each other, and peace comes back to South Sudan. This week, the UN Security Council held two meetings to address this latest turn of events in South Sudan. During a session on Wednesday, UN peacekeeping chief Erve Ladsus told members that the international community can no longer afford to sit idle as the people of South Sudan bear the brunt of the intransigence of their leaders. Diane Penn, United Nations. Let's go back in time to today in 1997. Italian fashion designer Gianni Versace is shot dead outside his Miami Beach mansion in the U.S. by Andrew Cunningham, who kills himself a few days later. That was today in history in the year 1997. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, zosa. Africa, amuka na unai. African Union heads of state will decide this week whether to expand the mandate of the UN peacekeeping force in South Sudan. Rwanda's Foreign Affairs Minister Louise Mushikiwabo says the latest fighting in South Sudan, the world's newest nation, will be given priority when African presidents meet in Kigali this week. The mandate of United Nations Mission for South Sudan, UNMIS, will expire at the end of this month. But there are proposals for an extension until the end of August and also the expansion of the troops' mandate to include combat. Clashes at the end of last week in South Sudan's capital, Juba, left more than 270 people dead. Sarah Kimani reports from Kigali. Calm but tense is how the UN describes the situation in Juba. And while peacekeepers have resumed limited patrols to secure protection of civilian sites, alarming reports that UN staff themselves have become targets, as UN spokesperson Stefan Dujeric explains. The mission has further received highly disturbing reports targeting of UN and international NGO personnel, premises and assets in Juba, allegedly by SPLA soldiers during the fighting that erupted in the last few week, few days. The report includes allegations of a killing of at least one South Sudanese national working for an international NGO, as well as rapes, including of international NGO staff. UN staff members have also been assaulted. We call on national authorities to investigate these serious allegations immediately and thoroughly and bring the perpetrators to justice. Fighting erupted a week ago between rival factions of the SPLA, forcing both President Salva Kiir and first Vice President Riek Mashar to order a ceasefire that has largely held, but not before displacing 42,000 people and killing close to 300. UN officials have warned South Sudan's leaders that attacks against UN staff, its premises and assets could constitute war crimes. 
The mission is also uh, looking into these incidents, including its own response. Our humanitarian colleagues also report that three days into the tenuous ceasefire in Juba, many people have begun to return to their homes. However, thousands remain displaced, including at the uh, unmissed Tompings base, the UN House, and the WFP compound. The relative calm has provided a window of opportunity for humanitarian organizations to respond. UN peacekeepers have been deployed to the country since independence five years ago. Dujeric would not be drawn on whether the transitional government has already collapsed. I don't know if I'm going to make a ruling on that one. What is clear is that uh, agreements were signed uh, by both both the president and the vice president. Those agreements, uh, we hope, can still be implemented. Um, what we have seen over the last few days is, again, the squandering of another opportunity. Uh, to bring peace uh, back to the country, especially back to Juba. Uh, over the last few days, we've seen again death and destruction. Uh, and the Secretary General's message continues to be the same, that the leaders need to put the needs of their people first and foremost. Two UN peacekeepers have been killed in the fighting with several injured, prompting calls for an arms embargo, targeted sanctions and reinforcements for the UN mission to be sent in. Matters the Security Council is currently considering. I'm Sherman Bricebees in New York. It's 8.17 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now let's go back in time to today in 1994. Tens of thousands of Hutus flee the tutsi railed rebel advance in, the, in Rwanda, flooding across the border into Zaire, now the DRC, in one of the greatest human flights in history. That was today in history in the year 1994. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zosa. Africa, Amuka, na unai. Rwanda has made it clear it will not arrest President Omar al-Bashir. The Sudanese president is among the African leaders expected to attend the 27th AU summit in Kigali. The International Criminal Court in The Hague is seeking to arrest President al-Bashir for allegedly committing genocide and crimes against humanity in Darfur. Silvanas Karamera reports from Kigali. The African Union is expected to support the proposal by the East African Regional Bloc, IGAD, to have a combat force in South Sudan. That proposal will then be forwarded to the UN Security Council for authorization. African Union countries are likely to contribute more troops in addition to the 13,500 soldiers and police on the ground. Louise Mushikiwabo is a foreign affairs minister for Rwanda. Nothing is off the table uh, for the leaders uh, that will be gathered here in Kigali to do everything possible, first, uh, to make sure that the people of South Sudan have protection, and two, to try and get the political process back on track. The meeting will also elect six new commissioners and a chairperson to replace Dr. Nkosozana Lamini Zuma, who steps down after serving one term. During the summit, African heads of state will launch a common African e-passport, which will be issued to all African Union citizens by 2018. And from there... Each country, each member state of the African Union will be working out practical modalities to start delivering those passports 
in each one of the countries. Trade between African countries is only 11%. The launch of the passport is expected to boost free movement of people and goods across the continent, in effect boosting inter-African trade. Sarah Kimani, Kigali, Rwanda. Rwanda has made it clear it will not arrest President Omar al-Bashir. The Sudanese president is among the African leaders expected to attend the 27th AU summit in Kigali. The International Criminal Court in The Hague is seeking to arrest President al-Bashir for allegedly committing genocide and crimes against humanity in Darfur. Silvanas Karamera reports from Kigali. Speaking in a press conference in Kigali with just one day before African leaders meet for their 27th summit in Rwanda, Rwanda's Foreign Affairs Minister Ruiz Mshichuabo made it clear President Omar al-Bashir will not see any problem while in Rwanda. President uh, Bashir is the leader of an African country, uh, duly invited and and should be part of this meeting. Uh, That's one. Uh, So as host, uh, we will host anybody that's been invited uh, by uh, the African Union for this very important summit. She said Rwanda has not subscribed to the Rome Statute and therefore does not recognize the court. The ICC has already requested the Rwandan government to arrest the President Bashir with the Minister Ruiz Mishichuabo describing the request as something destructive as Rwanda eyes the good proceedings of the African Union meetings in Rwanda. Rwanda uh, has not uh, adhered or subscribed to the Rome Statute, so we have no obligation, uh, we have no right uh, <laughs> to arrest uh, anybody, Uh, but uh, the request uh, from the ICC to the government of Rwanda two days ago, we view it as as a distraction and we're too busy to pay attention to that kind of thing. Of the 54 African countries, only 34 have subscribed to the Rome Statute on the establishment of the court, but according to Minister Mushichuabo, the respective 34 countries in Africa are thinking about pulling out of the court membership. Uh, the discussion uh, during this summit of uh, potential withdrawal of countries from the uh, Rome Statute, um, that is for the 34 countries that are members. Uh, 20 countries are not, including mine. Um, withdrawal is, uh, is a sovereign right. Countries uh, have uh, subscribed voluntarily and I suppose they can pull out uh, whenever they decide to do so, going through uh, whatever legal procedures are um, uh, provided for under the uh, Rome Statute. She said African Union has already established a special committee of foreign affairs ministers to assess the relationship between African countries and the ICC. In recent years, the accusations against ICC by African countries have drastically increased, accusing the court of being politically driven. Minister Louis Mushtiab also spoke on a long-awaited issue of election of the AU Commission Chair, which had initially seen some controversies and threatened postponement of election. Absolutely, elections will go on. Um, ECOWAS indeed uh, did uh, send to the African Union uh, Chairperson and Commission a request uh, for postponement. That uh, uh, will have to be discussed uh, by heads of state, but um, I'm not sure whether the entire block of ECOWAS is actually going to be asking for postponement. Uh, But uh, the commission 
of the African Union um, has uh, six out of uh, eight commissioners ending their term now and the view of my country and quite a few others is that um, we need leadership uh, for the commission without delay. So indeed, um, there is no uh, rule that uh, at this point, just a few days before the summit would stop uh, elections. But again, heads of state uh, in the assembly are sovereign and, and you know, who knows. But uh, I, I, my belief is that elections will go on. On Thursday evening, some presidents had started descending in Kigali ready for their weekend summit. Sylvanus Kalimera, reporting for Channel Africa in Kigali. Amnesty International has launched a report on human rights violations committed by Cameroon security forces in their fight against Boko Haram. The report states that while seeking to protect civilians from brutal Boko Haram attacks, Cameroon security forces have themselves committed human rights violations. But Cameroon has described the report as having evil intentions. Moki Kinzaga reports from Yaoundé. The report, entitled Right Cause Wrong Means, states that more than a thousand people accused of supporting Boko Haram and arrested arbitrarily are held in horrific conditions and some are tortured to death while some are dying from disease and malnutrition. Alun Tine, Amnesty International's Regional Director for West and Central Africa, says the situation is preoccupying. Ce que nous avons constaté de façon globale, c'est que l'État installe des situations ou des zones de nos droits. D'abord. He says in seeking to protect civilians from brutal attacks that Boko Haram militants have launched in the far north region of the country. Cameroon's authorities and security forces have committed human rights violations on a significant scale. They have arbitrarily arrested hundreds of individuals accused of supporting Boko Haram, often with little or no evidence, and detained them in inhumane, often life-threatening conditions. He says many of the detainees have been held in unofficial detention centers with no access to a lawyer or their families, and often subjected to torture. He says more than a hundred people, including women, have been sentenced to death since July 2015 in deeply unfair trials, often biased on little evidence. Même dans la guerre contre la terreur, et les responsables d'actes de torture doivent être jugés. The report adds that between July 2015 and July 2016, Boko Haram conducted at least 200 attacks, including 46 suicide bombings in the far north region of Cameroon, killing over 500 civilians. 67 members of the security forces have also been killed since 2014. In over half of these suicide attacks... Boko Haram used girls to carry and detonate the explosives. Cameroon's Minister of Communication and Government Spokesperson, Issa Chiruma, has described the report as of bad faith. Non seulement il n'est pas élogieux, non seulement il est loin de refléter la réalité, mais il est attentatoire à l'honneur. He says Amnesty International's report is biased and accuses the body of having evil plans for Cameroon. He says Amnesty has never raised concerns over the 2,000 Cameroonians who have died in the war. 
the soldiers killed and the women raped. He says there are inconsistencies when Amnesty says soldiers kill Boko Haram suspects and at the same time say prisons are congested with some of the suspects. Some Cameroonian journalists have also criticized the report. Ebenezer Akanga works with Cameroon's state broadcaster CRTV. A country like Cameroon cannot be in war against a terrorist group. And Amnesty International thinks what it can do is to write reports saying that government is torturing Boko Haram militants. No, this, this is total rubbish. Uh, has Amnesty International ever written a report to condemn the fact that Boko Haram is also killing Cameroonians? Does Boko Haram have the right to kill Cameroonians? Why is it that they don't make noise when Boko Haram kills Cameroonians? They only make noise when Cameroonian soldiers kill Boko Haram militants. No, we in Cameroon, we fully support our soldiers. We support our government. The report has called on the governments of Cameroon to stop the abuses which it indicates intensified in 2016. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Yawunde. United Nations Syrian envoy, Syria's envoy Stefan Dimistura says hopes of fresh talks decide the future of Syria depending on the United States and Russia doing more to make them happen. The veteran negotiator insisted that preparations for renewed discussions have been continuing since the last round of UN-led talks, often referred to as Geneva II, ended in April, but says the time is now right for them to take place yet amid escalating clashes in the war-torn country and ongoing humanitarian access problems. Daniel Johnson has more. The importance of Russia and the United States in bringing an end to the Syrian conflict remains undiminished, Stefan de Mistura told journalists in Geneva. Together, the U.S. and Russia sit at the head of the International Syria Support Group, foreign states and organizations which have influence on the ground in the war-torn country. We are ready. We want to do it. But to get something effective, we need the help of the two co-chairs because that will give a huge chance for these talks not to just be another Geneva II, which I am determined to avoid with the blessing, I'm sure, of everyone else. The UN Special Envoy for Syria was speaking amid speculation about when he might call a new round of peace talks between the government and opposition representatives. For the time being, ongoing clashes, particularly in Aleppo, and the dire humanitarian situation in Syria mean that talks cannot happen yet. A common stance on how to deal with al-Nusra extremists is also needed from the US and Russia, Mr Demistura said, adding that ambiguity over the issue should be clarified. The indiscriminate barrel bombing of civilians must also be addressed, he added. Despite all these obstacles, the next few days are crucial, the UN-Syria envoy said, in reference to diplomacy between the two superpowers. On the aid front, UN Humanitarian Task Force coordinator Jan Egerland renewed his call for access to the towns of Madaya, Foa, Zabadani and Kefraya, saying that starvation is next in Madaya. Mr Egerland also said that fighting has increased in the country and has prevented supplies reaching places like Douma near Damascus for several days. Aleppo, he said, was now all but cut off and its 200,000 inhabitants risked becoming besieged. 
He also spoke about the plight of the 90,000 people trapped on Syria's border with Jordan, saying that access there is increasingly difficult. Every single day there are new efforts to reach new places. Today we are moving towards Alwer, which is a besieged area in Homs. There are 75,000 people there, and the 19 trucks trying to reach today is a lifeline for the people there. The UN and its partners now have permission to access all besieged and hard-to-reach areas in the country, Mr Egeland said. But the aid coordinator explained that there is still disagreement over the number of people who need help, which means that too little aid is being delivered. And he said that the most horrific debacle for morality and international law was that humanitarian facilities were still being targeted in Syria more than anywhere else on earth. Daniel Johnson, United Nations, Geneva. Our, he- our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. In the headlines, French President François Hollande has addressed the nation deploring what he calls a terrorist attack in Nice. The African Union chairperson Ngosazana Tlameni Zuma warns against the use of the media to fuel conflict in Africa. And a European diplomat has warned Zimbabwe's leaders to heed their citizens' call for peaceful change. Those are the stories making headlines. world that remains beset by so much human suffering, poverty, and deprivation. It is in your hands to make of our world a better one for all. From July 18, raise your hand and make a dedicated effort to keep helping others in any way you can. Make every day a Mandela Day. It is in your hands to make a difference. Following a wave of strikes, civil unrest and a high-profile court case against a religious leader in Zimbabwe, a French diplomat has warned the country's leaders to heed its citizens' calls for change before it's too late. Images of police brutality against citizens and a popular pastor's arrest on charges of trying to topple the government have been beamed across the globe over the last week. While Zimbabwe is attempting to woo Western investors on the promise of reforms, outgoing French ambassador to Zimbabwe has told authorities that the world is watching the unfolding events. Shinganyoka has more from Harare. The French envoy stint has seen increased business ties with Zimbabwe, but it's also been marked by tension. During celebrations to mark France's Independence Day, a toast to President Mugabe. May he be, for his grandson Simba Nashe, a loving, caring and devoted grandfather. <laughs> but Ambassador Laurent Delahousse is also warning the country. Those who called in song and in prayer for a new, united and peaceful Zimbabwe. May their appeal be heeded before it is too late. Zimbabwe says it has intelligence linking the French and U.S. ambassadors to the violence that rocked Harare and Bulawayo last week. Home Affairs Minister Ignatius Chombo. It has come to our attention that the Western-sponsored regime change agenda has intensified. 
as evidenced by the involvement of some hostile foreign embassies in the recent unsuccessful attempts to bring the country to a standstill. The French envoy has ridiculed the claims against him and called on Zimbabwe to uphold its constitution in handling the waves of discontent over the economy. I make no excuses for believing in democracy and human rights as enshrined in the constitution of Zimbabwe. The freedom to assemble and demonstrate within the framework of the law and to use social media in a peaceful manner. The protection of the people by the state without unnecessary use of force. Even the right to stay at home. Zimbabwe is aggressively pursuing an agenda of re-engagement with the West, the World Bank and the IMF. This after over a decade of political and economic sanctions over long-standing debt arrears and human rights abuses. Fresh loans will help jumpstart an economy in crisis. Money can come this year once again because uh, uh, of that sense of emergency, the fact that everybody recognizes that the situation needs urgent uh, solutions. But global lenders want a raft of economic reforms that will ensure that this time Zimbabwe can repay its new loans. But the French envoy says the world is also monitoring governance and human rights, as well as the events that have unfolded over the last few weeks. Uh, it has a, a link with the sustainability of the economic policy uh, of, the, of the country in the future. So all of that is linked. Uh, And we take all of that into uh, consideration, certainly. He says despite sporadic abuses, Zimbabwe's rights record has improved over the years, but that it will take strong leadership and decisions if it is to fully re-engage with Europe and the United States. I'm Shingai Nyoka in Harare. Hundreds of Zimbabwean citizens living in South Africa have marched to the Zimbabwean embassy in Pretoria to highlight their concerns with the current economic and political situation in Zimbabwe and the arrest of Pastor Evan Mawarire. Mawarire, who was arrested after organizing a nationwide strike last week, has since been released. The group, which also comprised of various civil rights organizations, delivered their memorandum of grievances to the country's deputy ambassador. These Zimbabweans say they are tired of President Robert Mugabe's regime and are calling for political change in the country. They believe that Mugabe, who has been serving as president for nearly four decades, must step down and make way for people who will revive the country's struggling economy. They also want an independent investigation into the recent recorded and documentation of police brutality, transparency in the finances of all state-run institutions, the protection of labor rights of the working class, and the ban on imported goods from South Africa to be lifted. Suma Ulete is a Tajamuka member, one of the organizations which is part of the march. Zimbabwe is closing companies. How can therefore a reasonable government close imports from a country that has been sustaining us literally? We are surviving on imports. You don't have an industry but you close the borders. Why does Mugabe hate us so much? Does he want us to die? Zimbabweans are very peaceful people, very hard-working people. That's why we've been so patient. We have given him enough time. But there comes an extent when an enlisting is set to a point where it says, this is enough. Now we are drawing the line. Tinorin Banashe Nguyaya is a student at Vets University. He says he finds himself studying in a foreign country due to the difficult conditions in his own. Although he is equipping himself with education, he says his future is hanging as the two million jobs the Zimbabwean government promised to create have not materialized. So we are coming together and say we as students are affected because 
Once we are done studying here in South Africa, we, there are no job prospects for us. And we want, to, we want our country to be better. We've never seen a better Zimbabwe. And uh, one thing we have to emphasize is that we as young people, we are going to continue. This is, not, this is just the beginning. We haven't even started. We are going to continue. We've see, never seen a better Zimbabwe, and this is the beginning of that. More Zimbabweans who were part of the march say they want things to go back to normal so they can go back home. We all need to go back home. We all need to put Zimbabwe back to where it was. And it's not okay that a 92-year-old man is still in power, yet even in Britain a 49-year-old guy makes one mistake and leaves office. So we can only take so much and I think we've reached the limits. We can't take it anymore. We need our country back. Our family is there. We're far. It doesn't make us happy. The group has vowed to bring all its Zimbabwean consulates in South Africa to a standstill and say they will also target the ZANU-PF's interest the same way they claim they are being targeted by the ruling party. I'm Pumzilim Langin in Pretoria. British Prime Minister Theresa May has completed the process of forming her new government in the UK just 24 hours after taking over from David Cameron. Many of Cameron's prominent political allies have been ousted from top jobs, including George Osborne, who was replaced as Chancellor of the Executor by Philip Hammond. And eyebrows have been raised worldwide by May's decision to appoint Boris Johnson, the former mayor of London, as the country's new foreign secretary. But he won't be overseeing negotiations with Brussels over Britain's withdrawal from the European Union. That will be handled instead by another new government minister, the Conservative Member of Parliament, David Davies. Sam Coates is the deputy political editor of The Times newspaper in London. What is fascinating about what Theresa May has done is she has put some of the biggest names in politics, not people who she's friends with, and a lot of David Cameron appointments were, were parts of his chumocracy, but big, confident um, egos, in many cases, at the top of her government, uh, all with slightly overlapping job responsibilities, um, and all of them disagreeing over the single biggest task ahead for this government, which is what to do on Brexit. So we've got Boris Johnson, we've got Liam Fox, we've got David Davis, and we've got Philip Hammond, four people in very big jobs, uh, all will have a stake in what happens next in terms of Britain's relationship with the uh, European Union and how we detach, what form that detachment takes. And they all disagree. And so this government is going to hinge on whether or not Theresa May is as good at man and woman management as this reshuffle needs her to be. Because it, in the end, is all going to come down to her, whether she can manage the egos, whether she can manage the policy positions, and whether she can unite um, everybody around. Basically, Brexit is the most important task for this government, making sure we don't throw the country's economy off a cliff while delivering the kind of thing on immigration that people think that they voted for. I, do, I can't see a way through it, personally. I can't, see, I can't see how you reconcile the demands of business with the demands of the people who voted on largely on immigration. And trying to pull everybody together uh, uh, and a disparate group of views, people with very different, diff differing views, together is going to be a hell of a task. It's a reshuffle um, that, set, that sets herself a massive challenge as much as anything else. That was Sam Coates, the deputy political editor of the Times newspaper in London, speaking to speaking there about the new government in the UK. Now, the fifth annual International Marimba and Steel, Steel Pan Festival will get underway in three weeks in Johannesburg, South Africa. 
80 schools and institutions from across the continent will participate in performances, which will take the form of competitions in various categories, with over 65 workshops and performances offered to everyone who enters the gate. The event has over 1,600 performers from all over South Africa, as well as a large contingent from Zimbabwe, Swaziland and Botswana. For more on this, Norsile Zuma spoke to Marimba specialist and organiser of the festival, Joan Lithgow. The International Marimba Festival has been going now for four years. This is its fifth year and we attract people from all over the world and in particular people from Africa. This year we have bands coming from all over South Africa as well as the Botswana, Swaziland, Zimbabwe. We did have a contingent coming from Nigeria and they unfortunately couldn't make it. Bands come and perform in the primary school or the high school or the open sections. So we have people giving marimba workshops, steel pan workshops, djembe's. So we've got someone from Zimbabwe coming to teach mbiras. We also have people doing gumboot dancing, some Indian dancing, flamenco dancing this year, which is new. We've got a wonderful guy coming to do koisan dancing. Some of our youngsters are wondering what is marimba in steel pan? Can you right. please just elaborate on that? Marimba is an African xylophone, so it's a wooden instrument that's made with resonating bars or resonating boxes underneath it and it's probably the fastest growing instrument in South Africa at the moment. Every school wants to have a marimba band so it is really very very popular in schools. The steel pan gives you that wonderful island sound when you hear it played and it is the traditional instrument of Trinidad and Tobago and was the only instrument coming out of the 20th century that was an acoustic instrument. Is the festival targeting the youth or everyone is allowed to be part of it? Uh, Absolutely anybody is allowed to be involved in it. And we've got bands with people in their 40s and 50s coming perform, as well as children as young as 9 and 10 performing. Really, marimbas and steel pans don't have any kind of age limits at all. It's a very exciting festival. That was Joan Lithgow, marimba specialist and organiser of the forthcoming International Marimba and Steel Pan Festival, speaking to Sile Zuma. I hit our economics update up next with Tabisa Lehoku. Thanks, Balingile. Cote d'Ivoire aims to roughly double oil and gas output by 2020 as it pushes for foreign investment in offshore exploration. While it has developed natural gas deposits for domestic consumption, French-speaking West Africa's largest economy has ignored its energy sector for decades as government concentrated on developing agricultural exports. Authorities are now seeking to develop offshore reserves in the oil-rich Gulf of Guinea. Clearing and forwarding agents in the port of Mombasa on Kenya's coast are counting their losses due to the current political instability in South Sudan. Diana Wanyonyi reports from Mombasa. The Mombasa branch secretary of Kenya International Freight and Warehousing Association, Bernard Simeu, said the relevant clashes witnessed in South Sudan has led to the loss of millions of shillings. 
Some of us have cleared cargo for our clients in southern Sudan and we, we have not gotten our payments up to date. And so many clearing agents who, who have clients in, in southern Sudan are afraid that they are losing business every other time there is this war. Due to insecurity in South Sudan, the Freighters Association has now urged transporters in Mombasa to suspend their businesses, saying many trucks which were headed to Juba are stuck at the borders of Uganda and Sudan. Uganda's Mastercard Foundation has launched a program aimed at reducing poverty levels among youth in the north of the country through promotion of the agribusiness value chain to create jobs. The program, which is to be implemented under the Mastercard Youth Forward Initiative and the driving youth-led new agribusiness and microenterprise, will initially focus on 100 or rather 1,000 youths in eight districts in the northern of Uganda. Both male and female youth in northern Uganda are enthusiastic about undertaking agriculture as a business, both on and off farms. Australia's Woodside Petroleum is expanding its push into West Africa, agreeing to buy Conco Phillips deepwater stakes off Senegal, including one of the world's most promising recent oil finds for up to 430 million US dollars. The move brings a deepwater expert into the SNE field of Senegal and removes uncertainty over its ownership, which may help speed up development of a billion barrel resources that is expected to start producing within the next five years. The Zambian branch of South Africa's first national bank has appointed former Namibian CEO Leonard Haynes as the new chief executive of the local bank. Haynes will take over from Johan Mare, who is moving to a new assignment within the first rand group, which owns FNB effective August the 1st. The bank says he brings a wealth of experience from the various senior positions he has held within FNB South Africa and in a number of FNB subsidiaries. The US dollar trades at 14.34 to the South African rand at 10.59 Botswana Pula, 10.18 in Zambia, 7.5 British pound, 9.0 euro, gold $1,328, platinum $1,096 per ounce, brand crude $47.17 a barrel. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Thank you, Tabi. So our sports update up next was Figli Nwati. Now, sports update this hour, starting off with football news. The Olympic Games play outside FIFA calendar, and this has stirred headache for South African Football Association when it comes to clubs releasing players for the Games. Safa has struggled to call up overseas-based players. South Africa's under-23 men's coach Owen Dagama has only managed to call two overseas-based players in Lebu Mutiba and Tyrone Sendaus, who play for LOC Lille in France and Grimio in Brazil, respectively. Previously, Banyana Banyana coach Vera Powell lambasted Saskok for the number of players allowed to travel to Brazil, saying 18 players are inadequate. 
However, Saskook has allowed four extra players for each soccer team. Mambul has acknowledged Premier Soccer League for allowing clubs to release players by delaying the start of the domestic league. And in doping news in Kenya, the Kenyan government has termed the recent allegations from foreign media implicating Kenyan athletes to doping as an act of war. Sports Cabinet Secretary Hassan Wario says they will use all available means to substantiate those claims and that it will pursue legal ways to prosecute the foreign journalists if found guilty. This comes as Italian athletes coach Claudio Berardelli awaits his fate after being released on a half a million Kenya shillings bond for alleged involvement of minors. Samson K. Limo and Ken Kipchumba Limo, both initially at Eldorad St. Luke's Orthopedic and Trauma Hospital as having administered doping for some Kenyan and British athletes. We wish to categorically state that we condemn doping in the strongest possible terms. The two individuals mentioned in this matter are not in any way representing the hospital. It is the position of the hospital board and management that it was not and has not been aware of the treatment and doping activities involving Kenyan or British athletes and Kenyan Sports Cabinet Secretary Hassan Wario says Kenyan athletes have become targets because of their prowess in both the field and track events. We feel that Kenya is, is at war. Uh, we're being fought. We're being fought by forces that are very European, or what remains of Europe after Brexit. Um, we felt it was important that we came here to the home of the champions to also come and encourage our teams so that they can focus on the gold and not focus on these side issues. And I'm very happy to have the two governors and also representation from Nandi County, which is this is the, you know, the, the, the basket where we get all the talents from, sending strong statements to the world that Kenya and Kenyan government are fully in the fight to fight doping in this country. And any parallels that are being drawn between us and, and Russia is complete foolhardy. It is the difference between Kenya and Russia is the difference between day and night. And any attempt to try and uh, come up with similarities is absolute rubbish. South African Sports Confederation and Olympic Committee, SASCOC, has announced an additional 130 athletes to the Team South Africa squad that will be heading to the upcoming Rio Olympics in Brazil. The additional names comes after the completion of the final qualifying deadlines in the various sporting codes, bringing the final number of competitors for Rio to 137. SASCOC President Gideon Sam makes a plea to South Africans to support the team. are athletes or men and women with amazing stories. And this is what we are appealing to the South African public to do for us, is to follow these athletes. But for now, we are saying to the South African public, these are men and women with amazing stories. And those are the stories that are going to motivate us as South Africans and them as they listen to the comments that we make as they represent our country as well. 
That's your sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zola. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories, terrorists kill at least 80 people in France during Bastille Day celebrations, and Amnesty International accuses Cameroon of human rights abuses. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today and for the week. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuto Ramagaza, technical producer Mario Edwards, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info.channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Now taking us to the top of our for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Musa Manzini with a song titled Blue Bass. sultry moan Oh, well, carrying the weight of my anguished soul sounding out in musical notes